You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And torching in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in campus news, and I'll be covering how Pooter's school district high schoolers are bearing the brunt of a new increase in COVID-19. After that, Jonathan Gillum will update us on CSU Athletics, and then you'll be hearing highlights from an episode of Takes from the Anthropocene discussing structural violence. Then, Jacob Selby tells us about ongoing issues with police brutality, and Olivia Bode discusses how Fort Collins women impacted prohibition. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 statistics and speaking to Noelle Mason from The Collegian about a new research partnership at CSU. To conclude the show, Cuddle will be giving some updates on Amazon's union and updates on the semiconductor shortage. And I'll be telling you about how the U.S. government has confirmed the legitimacy of leaked UFO footage. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello, this is Coda Babcock filling in for Elia Shannon. Welcome back from spring break. Students and staff at CSU only have a few weeks left in the semester, so students should start preparing for finals. Saliva screenings are still available to all students, staff, and faculty, and you can register for a screening appointment on RamWeb. Again, this newscast was written by Ellie Shannon. CSU's Spur Campus in Denver is in the process of construction. According to Tiana Kennedy of CSU's College News, the second building is now laying its final steel beam on Tuesday, April 20th. The building, called Terra, opened several of its spaces in January. CSU Spur is focused on having K-12 students and families find inspiration through researchers, information, and from other students that are a part of CSU, CSU Pueblo, and CSU Global. The Terra building focuses on food and agriculture and will include programs that let the public interact with food systems. Under normal circumstances, the laying of the beam would commemorate with a public event, but this event will be virtual. Last week, CSU researchers predicted an above-average 2021 Atlantic hurricane season. The CSU Tropical Meteorology Project team is predicting 17 named storms during the Atlantic hurricane season. The season runs from June 1st to November 30th, and of those 17 storms, 8 of them are expected to become hurricanes. CSU University communications staff released an article through CSU's College News detailing that these predictions were made through statistical data and model outputs, such as the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts. The 2021 season is exhibiting similar behaviors to years such as 1996 and 2017, which were extremely active seasons. The CSU team will send updates on June 3rd, July 8th, and August 5th. CSU's Maximin Lab plans to begin to exploring possible links to electronic cigarettes and viral infections. The study is asking for participants between the ages of 18 and 30 to complete a nasal swab in exchange for a small payment if they qualify. The study asks for 50 participants with recent vaping exposure and 50 without exposure. Cheryl Magzaman, the Associate Professor of Epidemiology in the Department of Environmental and Radiological Health Sciences, spoke to Natalie Wayland of the Collegian, stating, quote, we wanted to try understand, to understand vaping behaviors as well as the changes that happen in your respiratory system when you vape or when you're exposed to vaping, end quote. If anyone is interested in this study, contact ERHS underscore Magzamin underscore lab at colostate.edu. Thanks for listening to Ellie Shannon's weekly newscast and make sure to turn into the Rocky Mountain Review every Tuesday and Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. during the semester. And always make sure to tune into KCSU. You're listening to 90.5 FM. I'm Coda Babcock. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is your local news for today. 
the city of Fort Collins may be able to restore some of the COVID-19-related budget cuts enacted last year if current city revenue trends continue. According to Miles Bloomhart at the Coloradoan, City Chief Financial Officer Travis Thorne and Financial Planning Analysis Director David Lenz shared a positive outlook with the City Council at the Tuesday Financial Update, although they cautioned that some uncertainty persists and that the city's recovery has been uneven. Thorne says, quote, As we approach the end of this current council's term, it's safe to say that the financial state of the city is strong and that we are entering the budget cycle subsequent to the pandemic from a position of being nearly or perhaps entirely able to restore some of the cut budgets that were enacted last year as a part of the immediate response to the pandemic, end quote. City Council receives a preview of the recommended 2022 budget in mid-August, at which point it will be clearer which 2021 cuts may be restored. The city typically adopts two-year budgets, but switched to a one-year model for 2021 and 2022 due to the pandemic's uncertain economic impacts. The city started 2020 in a good place financially, Len said, but the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic's economic impact in spring 2020 left it, quote, bracing for the unknown, end quote. Early estimates predicted a city revenue decline between $25 million to $50 million, or 10 to 20%. The city cut its budget to prepare for a $31 million shortfall, but it ultimately only experienced a shortfall of $16 million. The decline occurred due to declines in sales and uses taxes and income from culture and recreation fees, transportation fees, interest revenue, and other funding sources. COVID-19 cases are surging among Poudre School District high school students as younger people continue to contract and spread COVID-19 in what Governor Jared Polis is calling a fourth wave of the virus. According to Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, less than one month after all district schools reopened for in-person learning, Poudre School District reports more than 200 new COVID-19 cases. District data shows April stopped more students and staff in remote learning due to COVID-19 quarantines than it has in a full month since at least October. As of April 14th, over 2,700 staff members and students have been in remote learning due to exposure or positive test result for at least a portion of the month, with a peak of over 1,600 students and staff on a single day, April 8th. The entire month of March, the second highest month for the remote students and staff in district data, 2,349 people were remote for those reasons. April is also the first full month all PSD schools are in Phase 4, or full-time in-person learning, since the start of the pandemic. Middle and high schools began Phase 4 after spring break. Despite the peak, 97.2% of students were not in remote learning as of April 14th, according to the district's dashboard. High schools account for 41% of the district's total cases since the fall. In the three weeks following secondary schools returned to in-person learning, district high schools reported 91 new cases of COVID-19, 75% more cases than were reported during the three-week period following the same schools returned to hybrid learning in January. District spokesperson Madeline Noblet said the district feels the number of cases remains manageable. 
Corey Wilford, a spokesperson for the Larimer County Department of Health and Environment, says conversations at the county health department have not yet suggested closing schools or sending students back to remote learning indefinitely. She says the county still believes the spread is not happening in district buildings, but outside of school, where teens are likely more relaxed about COVID-19 precautions. Wilford says that, quote, It's mostly because kids are really social, and they're hanging out in all sorts of places, and when they're not in school, certainly, their guards are probably down, or they're not, you know, following the mask wearing and then distancing as much as they can be, end quote. To mitigate the rising cases at the high school level, PSD said it will continue to follow Larimer County health guidance and is not relaxing mask or distancing guidelines. Noblet said that schools have also taped off lanes to guide students through hallways while maximizing distance, taken away student access to lockers to minimize close contact, and added specific protocols for classes like band and orchestra. The district has loosened its quarantine guidelines, however, allowing students and staff who are asymptomatic to have a shortened seven-day quarantine if they can provide a negative test. Health and education officials also believe vaccines could play a role in slowing the spread among school populations. As of April 2nd, Coloradoans age 16 and older are eligible for the vaccine, but those younger than 18 are only able to receive the Pfizer vaccine. Noblet said the district is working to get students who are now eligible for vaccination paired with appointments, but PSD is not requiring that students be vaccinated. I'm Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. After the break, we're going to be hearing the RMR Sports Report with Jonathan Gillum. Stay tuned. KCSU listeners, it's a happy, snow-melting, slightly warm April the 20th, Tuesday, and I'm Jonathan Gillum bringing you your sporting news. CSU just got off spring break for the week, but we did have some interesting results over the weekend, starting with last Friday on April 16th, the men's golf started their Invitational, and... Moving on to Saturday, the men's golf finished tied for 15th and 17th place. Women's tennis faced San Diego State and won 4-3 here in Fort Collins. CSU softball went to Nevada and played two of their first three games in their series. They lost 3-5 in their first game. Their second game, though, won 12 to nothing. And there was also a track and field invitational at sooner in Oklahoma and those results can be found at csurams.com but I do want to highlight one CSU Ram 
Jaina Jasper, a freshman right here from Colorado State, finished third place in the 100 meter dash. And like I said, the rest of the results are available at csurams.com. And then moving on to Sunday, the women's tennis would lose 0 to 4 against UNLV, and softball would lose 3 to 4, losing the series 1 to 2 against Nevada. Today, softball will face Northern Colorado, and we'll have more updates for you on Thursday. Hope everyone had a restful spring break last week, and we got a couple weeks to the finish. Hope everyone has a really good time studying for those exams. Anyway, for KCSU Sports, I'm Jonathan Gillum, and I'll catch you next time. Hey everybody, my name is Olivia, and today we're going to talk about some of the hidden history of Fort Collins, Colorado. Women's roles in town, prohibition, and murder. The main topic of today's podcast is the Women's Christian Temperance Union a national organization that was founded by women for women in 1874. The women in the group felt a moral objection to drinking alcohol for religious reasons. Their main goal as an organization was to prohibit the sale, making, and drinking of alcohol. Now, this may seem rather extreme to us today, but during this time period, alcohol was often associated with violence, like bar fights, domestic abuse, and family poverty. The Fort Collins chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union was founded in 1879 because so many women in Fort Collins were worried about the amount of alcohol in the town. At that time, there were around 13 saloons in town, which is quite a lot considering the town only had around 2,000 people in it. Women like Auntie Stone and Lucy McIntyre were not only concerned with the alcohol, but the effects that the alcohol had on many men. Some men would become violent and participate in bar fights, or even abuse their wives and children, and yet others would waste their entire paychecks on liquor, which left the family without any money for food, clothing, or rent, since men were the only ones who would work. Things like this were commonly overlooked during this time period, because men were rarely held accountable for their actions, and there were basically no organizations that could provide help for women or children in need. The ones who noticed this were the women that were being affected by this wastefulness and violence. As a local example of this, there's the story of Ava and James Howe. They moved to Fort Collins in 1880, and by all accounts, were happy and part of the good society. But according to the Fort Collins Courier, by 1886, James was under the influence of liquor, and when in this condition, he invariably mistreated and shamefully abused his wife. And on April 4th, 1888, Ava got the courage leave her husband. She left their five-year-old daughter with their neighbor and went to pack up her things. Sadly, James came home drunk and saw Ava packing and started to beat her. She tried to fight back and call for help, and she managed to make her way out onto the street and caught the attention of a few people passing by. Those who had seen the violent fight rushed to help her, but she was dead before they could. Some of the men who had seen the murder went into the house and tied up her husband before the police arrived. The rest of the day was a whirlwind of justice. James was arrested for Ava's murder, examined by the doctor, and found to smell of alcohol. He went to trial and was found guilty of murder. Everyone in the town was horrified by Ava's murder. And later that same night, a mob of angry men took justice into their own hands. They cut the power to the town jail and stormed it, even tying up the police officers so that they could not interfere with their plan. 
They broke James Howe out of jail, and they hung him in the street. Their actions were viewed as swift Western justice, and the police didn't even try to find out who had been a part of the mob. While their actions were technically illegal, you know, murder, they certainly viewed themselves as morally righteous. And to this day, this is the only lynching in Fort Collins history. The murder of Ava Howe and the subsequent lynching of her husband made many people in Fort Collins aware of the dangers of alcohol and its connections to violence. This event was intense, unforgettable, and caused many people to agree with the Women's Christian Temperance Union and their belief that alcohol was a corrupting influence that should be banned. The Women's Christian Temperance Union fought for the prohibition of alcohol in numerous ways, but the most visible way was their column in the Fort Collins Courier, the local newspaper. They paid for a temperance column that had stories about the dangers and evils of alcohol. They had one titled, The Demon of Drink and the Devil's Chain, which accused those who drank of not listening to the word of God. This story and others like it made drinking into a moral issue where a person could only be considered a good Christian member of society if they did not drink. By making this an issue of morality, the Women's Christian Temperance Union were making it a social issue into a women's political issue. And at that time, women were considered the moral compass of the country. They were seen as more religious, nurturing, and generally more wholesome than men. Yet women were still not able to vote, but being part of organizations like this, it was a way for women to get involved in politics. It was a way for them to control their lives and how they were treated before they had the legal right to. They used different political strategies like letter writing campaigns, petition drives, testimonials, and collecting signatures while focusing on single issues so that they could be successful. These tactics were used in important campaigns like the women's suffrage movement and the civil rights movement and are still effective tools that are used in politics today. While the Women's Christian Temperance Union did participate in politics before they had the right to vote, they felt that they could be more influential if they could vote. And women in Colorado got the right to vote in 1893, 27 years earlier than nationally, where women didn't get the right to vote until 1920. Women in Colorado were fortunate that their hard work campaigning for the vote led them to be the second state in the country to gain women's suffrage. And the women of the Fort Collins Women's Christian Temperance Union took full advantage of their newfound rights, and three short years later, in 1896, the prohibition of alcohol was passed. Prohibition lasted up into the 1960s and led to an exciting history of alcohol smuggling and speakeasy-style bars in town. Yet, the role of the Women's Christian Temperance Union has been a relatively forgotten part of the story. I hope that I was able to put this interesting organization back into the local Fort Collins historical narrative where it belongs. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something new about the history of Fort Collins. Also, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, the National Hotline for Domestic Violence phone number is 1-800-799-7233. Thanks.
Hello, you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. I'm Jacob Selby, and these are the national news highlights for Tuesday, April 20th. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to begin urgently cooperating on climate change. According to the Associated Press, the U.S. and PRC agreed to measures which would help reduce carbon emissions to curb the effects of climate change. The two countries are considered to be some of the biggest climate polluters in the world, and any change to their climate policy could have massive ripple effects across the world. This news comes just days before U.S. President Joe Biden hosts a virtual summit of world leaders to discuss the issue of climate change and its projected effects on the global economy. The agreement was reached over the course of two days by U.S. Special Envoy John Kerry and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping in Shanghai last week. According to Kerry, the two nations recognize their responsibility in leading the world towards more sustainable energy options and that they must cooperate with each other to treat the issue with the level of seriousness it demands. The U.S. and China contribute to nearly half of all fossil fuel emissions globally, being the first and second largest economies in the world respectively. While China is currently the world's largest polluter of carbon emissions, the U.S. has a much longer modern history of mass pollution dating back to the Industrial Revolution. One contributing reason pollution may be decreasing in the U.S. in recent decades is simply because heavy industry that once inhabited U.S. cities has simply moved overseas to places like China where labor laws are far more relaxed. However, climate change is a global issue and simply moving the source of pollution to a new country will not decrease global greenhouse emissions. In fact, the practice could even lead to higher emissions due to less government oversight. Cooperation between the world's two largest polluters is critical if the world is to have any chance of slowing the destructive effects of climate change. However, the U.S.-China relationship has been strained in recent years over American accusations of human rights violations against ethnic Uyghurs in western China, territorial disputes in the South China Sea, Taiwanese sovereignty, and the breach of the one-country-two-system policy in Hong Kong. However, the two countries have expressed their hopes in curbing climate change and reducing local pollution to make their own nations more livable. China is still the world's largest user of coal-fired power plants and factories due to coal being cheap and abundant. However, the consequences of coal's use as a power source are made clear by simply viewing the level of pollution in the Beijing skyline. U.S. President Biden announced plans to put the U.S. on path for being an emission-free economy by 2050, while Chinese President Xi has expressed his intent to make China carbon neutral by 2060. A former sheriff's detective in Texas suspected of killing three people who had been on the run over the weekend, has been captured by authorities. According to David Lee of NBC News, former Sheriff Stephen Broderick, accused of shooting three people Sunday morning, was captured after being spotted walking on a country road near Austin, Texas. Broderick was armed with a pistol at the time of his capture, but complied with law enforcement and surrendered peacefully. Broderick is suspected of fatally shooting two males and a female at an apartment building 18 miles north of where he was captured. This incident marks the latest in a string of mass shooting events which have rocked the nation over the past month. However, 
This incident is notable because the assailant is a former law enforcement officer. The shooting triggered a massive manhunt in the state of Texas looking for the former officer. Because of his former experience as a law enforcement officer and his advanced training with firearms and police tactics, it was crucial to capture Broderick as soon as possible. Broderick also faced charges for sexual assault in June of 2020. The motive behind the shootings is not yet clear, but authorities believe that Broderick knew all of his victims. Two of the victims involved in the shooting were teenagers who attended a local high school. The shooting marks yet another gun-related tragedy involving the death of school-aged children. The increasing trend of gun violence has been brought to the nation's consciousness as many high-profile incidents such as the King Supers shooting in Boulder are once again happening more commonly. President Joe Biden recently said he plans to increase gun control measures to help prevent further mass shootings. However, gun control remains a highly contentious issue, and future provisions to limit the sale or ownership of certain classes of firearms often used in criminal activity are still unclear. It is not yet known if the recent executive order taken by the Biden administration to limit the sales of certain classes of guns would have prevented this shooting. Broderick remains in police custody in Austin. Recently released footage of the death of a 13-year-old Latino boy who was shot by police last month has sparked national outrage. According to Noel King of NPR, thousands of protesters marched on Chicago's Little Village to protest the death of Adam Toledo. Police body camera footage shows Toledo throwing his gun to the ground and raising his hands to surrender to Chicago police. However, less than one second later, Toledo was shot dead by police despite having clearly disarmed himself. Many critics of policing in the U.S. have claimed that the police officer in question blatantly murdered Toledo since it was clear his intent was to surrender. Others have argued that a phenomenon, often referred to as the fog of war, in which uncertainty of a critical and dynamic situation played a role in the officer's reaction. An attorney for the Toledo family claimed that Adam died, quote, because he complied with police, end quote, and that once police had made up their mind to shoot him, there was simply no situation where Toledo could have been expected to survive the encounter. It is now up to the Cook County State Attorney's Office to decide if Eric Stillman, the officer who fatally wounded the unarmed Toledo, will face charges of murder. The incident highlights stark differences in how police interact with the public, and especially minority communities in American cities, and what the role of law enforcement should be. With the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd coming to an end, and new incidents of police violence against minorities happening often, the future of law enforcement interactions with the public at large remains unclear. That's all for the National News Highlights. I'm Jacob Selby, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins 90.5 FM. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast. My name is Eamon Awinat, and with me we have Fisher Fitz Randolph. Fisher, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Fisher Fitz Randolph. I'm uh, 22 years old, and I'm a senior here at Colorado State University studying cultural anthropology. Awesome, awesome. Great to hear. So what do you have prepared today for us, Fisher? Well, yeah, first I, I want to start off with a story and let that kind of frame the rest of this podcast. So there was once a, a young medical student working in Haiti, which is a very poor Caribbean island country. And this young student was working in Haiti, the poorest of the poor. And he remembers this one account that kind of had a, a pivotal moment in his life. He was driving through some mountainous roads 
and he turns a corner and he comes upon this scene where there's this old rusty beaten up truck been flipped over and there's just a carpet of mangoes spread out along the road. And, and clearly he recognizes there was an accident. Something, something's happened here. The truck crashed, all these mangoes spilled. But, but as he looked further, he saw there was a woman strewn about the mangoes too. Realized that she wasn't moving, she was dead. And as he's realizing these things, a police officer walks up and says, yes, the, the truck has crashed and the woman has died. There's nothing to see here, move along. And this young man who we come to find out is Paul Farmer has this epiphany, right? Where he goes, was this a freak accident? Or was there something a little bit more nefarious here? Were there some direct causes that contributed to this moment? Paul Farmer analyzed the situation and he realized this wasn't a freak accident. There were direct causes here to be blamed. And so as he kind of analyzed the situation, he, he looked at the roads and he said, these roads are in terrible condition. There, there are potholes that are inches, feet deep. There are, are steep cliffs where cars could tumble off. There's no signs. There's no maintenance. And he realized that the government had been quite neglectful in maintaining and repairing these roads. And he went a little bit further and he said, look at this old truck. Like this old truck surely has not been maintenanced in years. Who knows if the brakes are good? The, the tires are very flat, right? And he realized there was very, very deep poverty running through this country. And, and the owner of this truck, even if he wanted to, didn't have the means to, to make his truck safe, to maintain his truck, to, to make it in optimal condition. And then he looked at the poor woman who, who had died, obviously sitting in the back of this truck because of the, the accident. And he said, what was this woman doing driving on such a dangerous road with all these mangoes? And he, he came to find out that this woman would travel miles and miles and miles every single day on these dangerous roads uh, to sell mangoes, to make pennies so that she could feed her family. And so to Farmer, the death of the woman in the mango truck was no freak accident, right? It wasn't like a, a meteor just fell out of the sky and killed her. It wasn't a freak accident, right? It was no freak accident that the roads were so dangerous. It was no freak accident that the truck's owner didn't have money to maintain his truck. It was no freak accident that the peasant woman had to make this treacherous journey every single day to sell mangoes just so she and her family could eat. Paul Farmer recognized that all these circumstances had causes. And these causes in this situation was selfish people in power and a neglectful government and a failing economic system that was unwilling to care for the people who needed it the most. And Paul Farmer uses this term called structural violence. And he says that this woman was the victim of structural violence. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today in this podcast, uh, structural violence. My argument is that structural violence exists in this world all around us, but also it's our moral obligation as citizens to be aware of it and combat it. So first, I just want to take some time to divine structural violence. I want to provide some examples to help bring this to life and how it's manifesting today before our eyes. Lastly, I just want to provide a brief path forward so we know how we, as everyday citizens, can help combat this structural violence. That was super insightful, a very, very riveting story. I think you definitely bring up a lot of great points. And I just wanted to ask you, how would you define structural violence? Structural violence can be defined as this. Uh, it's it's any time that a social or a cultural, economic, political structure perpetuates inequality or in, induces suffering, induces violence on people. So, yeah, if we just break that word down, there's a structure, there's a system, there's an entity, and it is committing violence against either one person or a group of people. And let's talk about this idea of violence, right? Usually violence uh, in our minds is something, it's quick, it's instantaneous, right? If someone were to punch you in the shoulder, you would feel that pain instantaneously. You could observe the violence happening. But after three or four seconds, the, the, the violent moment is over, right? Structural violence also introduces this idea that violence can be more of a slow, creeping form of violence, right? It's less visible. So 
if we're running with the punching analogy, if someone punches you initially, that's quick, obvious, instantaneous violence that we're used to, right? But there's also a more subvert form of violence. Say someone were to pinch you on the arm once every five minutes for the rest of your life. For the first day or so, you probably wouldn't notice it that much. It might be annoying, but you wouldn't consider that violence, right? Well, after a couple months, your arm would be severely bruised. And after a year, it would become excruciating because this spot was constantly pinched over and over and over again. And so we see structural violence introduces this idea of systems committing violent acts against people, but not necessarily a quick, instant, violent thing like war, but something that's more subvert, something that's more more prolonged, something that's creeping and, and under the surface that's hard to see. So at the end of the day, simplified it's a structure that's committing violence either outrightly or more subvertly in ways we don't necessarily see so bringing up some points you know that that yeah i would not like my arm getting pinched for right. <laughs> however long five years that does not seem fun so could you just kind of bring up some examples and kind of bring to light about you know some different examples about structural violence totally yeah so i mentioned the the, the mango truck story right and in this situation uh, paul farmer identified structural violence happening kind of at two levels right he said there was a neglectful government who instead of using the money they received to repair the roads and build infrastructure for the citizens, they didn't. And, and we know that in Haiti, the government has corruption in, in, in many ways. And so the roads weren't repaired, and that came at the cost of the people. So that, that's one form of structural violence, systemic violence that might also be called too. The second form of structural violence that Paul Farmer notes is the failing economic system, right? These people were living in such deep poverty that in order to eat, they have to make this treacherous journey day by day. They have to drive this vehicle that they probably wish was in better condition, but they have no means to do so because of the failing economic provision and care. So those are what Paul Farmer identifies as structural violence. We also learned about this example from a former CSU grad student, John McGreary, and and he really focused his graduate thesis on the way colonization and those forces acted as structural violence on the nation of Haiti. And he provides this example of how the French colonialists, right, that's the system, the structure they came and they cut down a lot of the island or a lot of the trees on this island. And by cutting down these trees, they, they set up their plantations. But this in and of itself doesn't seem like a very violent act, right? They just they just cut down some trees, right? But we see the violent implications that this has had on the Haitian people for hundreds of years now. So once the trees were cut down, drought and famine came about, right? Because the ecosystem was completely disrupted. Even more than that, the the people of Haiti didn't have any resources because this external force came and took all their timber, came and took all their palm trees, came and took all of these resource-rich trees. And lastly, when the trees were cut down, the soil became weaker. So when rains came, there were massive landslides that ended up killing many, many people. So we see this French colonialist system coming in and doing this act that doesn't seem that violent, right? Just cutting down some trees, but... This form of structural violence ended up being quite violent, quite detrimental to the Haitian people. Right, right. And so if we come back to the United States, I guess, can you provide any examples of structural violence that are like, you know, here, like in our own country? Great question. Yeah. There's one example that I love that really illustrates structural violence here in America. It came from a podcast I listened to from Dr. Uh, Celine Gounder, and she talks about how the Navajo Nation here in America has some of the highest rates of COVID, right? So everyone knows COVID, the global pandemic is sweeping the world, but Consistently, the Navajo Nation over these past eight months or so has shown higher numbers than the rest of America. And and she asks the question, why is this? And she ends up kind of outlining these couple major points, right? And she says, the Navajo Nation has a complete 
not a complete, but a major lack of infrastructure. She reports that over 30% of people living in the Navajo Nation are without water, plumbing, or electricity. Wow. These standards are, are unacceptable in, in modern cities, right? If, if this was the case in Denver, the, the government would surely immediately fix this, right? Or, or private companies would come in. These just rates are not acceptable. But in Navajo Nation, the, the shoulder has been turned, the government, and people just haven't, haven't paid attention to this terrible, terrible thing. And, and just imagine if you were without water, how are you supposed to wash your hands to stay sanitary during COVID? It, it's just, it, it just makes sense, right? If you don't have water or electricity, you're at a higher risk. Of, of catching sickness, but especially COVID. We also know in the Navajo Nation, during the Cold War era, a lot of mining happened in that area. And so many of the water sources, many of the natural areas of that land have become destroyed by toxic runoff. So we have all this mining waste that's just been pumped into lakes and rivers and ponds and ecosystems. So a lot of the natural resources of the area too are, are poisoned by uh, this toxic runoff, right? This is another thing that makes people far more vulnerable to catching sickness. The last point she brings up is just over 175,000 people in the Navajo Nation have to drive over two hours to get to a grocery store. And once they show up at the grocery store, the food is high calorie, high fat. And, and this is just cascading into other problems like diabetes and obesity. But we see, right, that the Navajo Nation has been put into this area by the U.S. government. They've been relocated, right? And then this new area that they're in, uh, the system that the government has provided for them has left them extremely vulnerable. People don't have water. There's toxic waste everywhere, right? People have to drive two hours to get to food. And while these things don't seem like acts of violence in and of themselves, over years and years of that pinching motion, right, it comes to cause great stress on these people. And we're seeing a really tangible expression through the COVID rates. And I hope people could see that the COVID rates aren't higher there for no reason, right? The, the mango truck didn't spill because of a freak accident. Same thing with the cases in the Navajo Nation. This is not a freak accident. This isn't some weird genetic explanation. There are structural things happening here that needs to be looked at. Yeah, and you want to know something? It's extremely disappointing, but I'm not really shocked or yeah. surprised at this. You know? yeah. It's not anything new. So when you talk about structural violence, do you see it prevalent or I guess enacted on by governments or more of like political bodies? Yeah, totally. So up to this point, I've mentioned, you know, how governments seem to be the main enactor of this structural violence. And I think it's true that governments are, are supposed to care for and lead the people and make these systems that make people benefit. And sometimes they don't. So the governments around the world are, are a great place to look. But it also happens in companies, in, in business enterprises as well. Here's an example that I love that really, really exemplifies that. In Alaska, in, in uh, 1989, Exxon, uh, which was a, an oil petroleum company, had a giant spill in the Prince William Sound in Alaska. This is known as the Exxon Valdez spill. And there's a movie called Black Wave that did a really amazing job of just encapsulating what happened and the effects it had on the people. And in 1989, over 10 million gallons of oil spilled into this really delicate Alaskan ecosystem. And initially, you look at this, right, and you go, okay, oil spills happen. They're, they're terrible and they're sad, but they're not necessarily a violent thing. They're, they're sad and they might disrupt the ecosystem, but how could this be violence, really? Uh, well, as, as we trace... Uh, the acts of this oil spill throughout the film, we find out that, yeah, the oil spill maybe didn't impact people immediately in a violent way, right? But the long-term damages were severe, right? That motion of being pinched over and over and over again came to produce some really severe consequences. And so first off, the oil spill destroyed the ecosystem and the people were initially able to adapt and be okay, but 
lot of the people living in this area rely heavily on fishing for their jobs. And so if the ecosystem is destroyed, the, the whole fishing industry became destroyed. So people who have spent their whole lives fishing and their identity is wrapped up in fishing all of a sudden have lost all of that. And not just to mention the fish, but birds and other mammals in the area were also destroyed. And with the fishing industry gone, the economy became tanked. And so people slipped into deep poverty and people gained a lot of mental health and resiliency too from being in this beautifully natural area. And, and once the oil spill destroyed it, a lot of people lost mental health resiliency as well. And so we see, yeah, how, how this structure, right, Exxon, the, the oil company, handled the situation. They tried to brush it off. They tried to say nothing was wrong. We're doing our best to clean it up. But they were honestly just doing a lot of lip service to the media. And the people uh, of Prince William Sound really paid the price dearly. And so we see the structure, Exxon Valdez, committing violence in a not-so-obvious way, right? They, they spilled oil, and they didn't clean it up. But as you see this action of being pinched over and over again, it creates a very violent and a very destructive environment for people to live in, which causes severe, severe problems. Right. And Fisher, I think you definitely, throughout you know, the last couple of points you brought up, you brought up some definitely some great arguments and great examples of how structural violence is prevalent, not only in our country, but like around the world itself. So, you know, looking at all this stuff, what can somebody like myself, you know, like an average citizen or like an average Joe do when there are such high level issues and you know, what can I do to kind of help these acts stop? Yeah, great question. Great question. So I, I hope by defining structural violence and by giving these examples, we come to see that structural violence is a really real thing that exists in this world. It's around us, right? We can't go as far to say that every source of poverty or every source of suffering is a cause of structural violence. I think that's taking it a little bit too far. I think there is human agency. I think that humans are responsible for a lot of things too. And you can change your situation. I think it's a mix. There is human agency, but there's also structural violence. But when it comes to identifying structural violence, I would encourage everyone to look around, look at the systems around us, right? Be aware of structural violence and the suffering that it's causing in people's lives. Also to, to conclude, I want to introduce this idea called the twofold path of care. This is something that I have kind of thought up through my research and stuff. And it's this idea of how do we end structural violence, right? You said it's this systemic high level issue how does everyday joes like you and i go about combating this right the first path of the twofold path of care is just do everyday acts of kindness do what you can day by day to help end suffering if you see someone hungry right you should buy them some food you can end suffering in that moment immediately and i think that's a morally good thing if your roommate uh, loses his job right Take him in for a few days. Give him a place to stay, right? We, we're called as humans to, to, to love one another. We're a team on this planet together, right? We need to help one another when we're suffering, right? But that doesn't address the high-level suffering, right? Here comes the second path of the twofold path of care. The second path says that we need to understand and be aware of these systems and structures and know which ones perpetuate suffering and which ones don't. And, and it's our moral obligation to know which structures do perpetuate suffering and not support those. We need to use our voice. We need to use our vote. We need to use our money and not give money to those systems, those structures, right? And we need to give our money, our votes, our resources towards structures that don't perpetuate suffering, that don't enact violence on people, no matter how subvert, how quiet it really is. So to close, I just want to end with this quote that I think wraps up this idea of the twofold path of care. It's from Martin Luther King Jr. I'm going to read it and then I'll just have a brief remark. This is the quote. It says, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion awaiting burial. Martin Luther King's talking about religion here, and I think that's true, but 
I think we could apply this to everyday men and women too, right? Any man or woman that professes to be concerned about the souls of, of, of the men and women around them, the suffering and the well-being of men and women around them, but is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the, and the social conditions that are crippling them, is a person who is not being as effective as they could be. In, in the strong words of Martin Luther King, is someone awaiting burial. So, yeah, I, I hope this quote inspires us to go forward and enact that twofold path of care and suffering where we can and fight against uh, structural violence uh, in all the ways that we can. Thanks so much for having me, Eamon. Thank you, Fisher. Very insightful work and definitely food for thought for everybody out there listening. So thank you, Fisher, for coming on and uh, you're doing some great work. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy your day. Thanks. Welcome back to KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for COVID-19 updates. Colorado State University reports a cumulative total of over 3,100 cases of COVID-19 at the university among students, staff, and faculty since May of 2020. Due to the shift online, CSU community members are no longer required to be screened for COVID weekly unless they are working on campus or performing other required duties in person. Saliva screenings remain available, and you can register on RamWeb or at CSU's COVID site. Larimer County reports a high-risk score for COVID-19, as well as over 24,000 cases and 235 deaths. Larimer County replaced the state-style framework with its own, which reports that the county is at level 1 caution. Nearly 100 new positive cases were reported Monday, and every day in the past two weeks saw a minimum of 50 new daily cases. One day in the past two weeks saw over 10% of tests administered come back positive, and the county reports a 14-day case rate of over 380 per 100,000 residents. 35 COVID patients received treatment in area hospitals, and overall hospital utilization is at 78%. Intensive care units are becoming full with 86% utilization. The state of Colorado reports over 491,000 COVID cases and over 6,300 deaths due to COVID-19. Over 4,600 outbreaks were reported statewide, and 2.8 million people received testing. 2.3 million people received one dose of the vaccine, and nearly 1.5 million people are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 in the state. Nationally, the U.S. reports 31.7 cases of COVID-19, with an increase of over 70,000 Monday. Deaths reached over 567,000, with an increase of around 500 Monday. In the past two weeks, cases went up by 4%, and deaths went down by 5%. The best methods in COVID-19 prevention for those not currently immune to the virus through vaccination include washing your hands regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing face masks, and keeping social distance from others outside of your household. Information from this segment comes from CSU's COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, National Public Radio, and the New York Times. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. And as a reminder, even those who are vaccinated must wear a mask due to the public mask mandate. Now we're going to be hearing from Noelle Mason about a new partnership with CSU and a local CBD business. 
Today, I'm joined by Noel Mason from the Collegian to talk about a new partnership with CSU and a local CBD company. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about how this partnership began? Yeah, the partnership began when uh, Leslie Budorf, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, um, she is an alumnus of CSU and she donated $1.5 million to CSU for the creation of a um, cannabinoid research lab. All right. And then what was Leslie Butterf's, Butterf's goal in supporting CSU's CBD Research Center? Yeah, so the goal was to give back, I think, to her alma mater, but also create a research center that was focused on cannabinoids, um, which is a class of molecules that come from the cannabis plant, but it's not focused on THC, the psychoactive one that um, marijuana smokers or users would uh, get high off of. So it's more of a therapeutic molecule um, and it focuses on the more therapeutic and medical applications of this molecule. All right. And then can you tell us a little bit about Panacea Life Sciences, the partnered organization that Butterf uh, runs? Absolutely. So it is a company that creates therapeutic products um, out of primarily CBD, which is cannabidiol. Um, and it's a non-psychoactive cannabis molecule. Um, and this is to help with a lot of symptoms like chronic pain, um, seizures, anxiety, um, various ailments. So why is it important that CSU continues research on hemp products like CBD? Yeah, so CSU has become a leader um, in sort of researching this class of molecules. And it's important that they continue research on it because there's a lot of inconsistencies in the production chain um, for hemp products and it's not super well regulated. So it's important that they're able to study these molecules and understand how to make them safer and iron out these inconsistencies so that companies like Panacea um, can make safe products for their customers. All right, and then just continuing on about CSU, what are some examples of CSU's current plans for the research with this money? Yeah, so I think currently um, the focus is on a lot of CBD related, um, especially interactions with other molecules. And then also um, there's a lot of work being done into how to separate molecules like CBD from other molecules like THC, um, which causes that high. So you want you don't want them to be in the same product um, most of the time. So ideally, um, I think a lot of the research is going towards these separation uh, techniques and then also the interactions of CBD with other molecules. All right, and then do you have anything you'd like to add about this story? Not particularly. All right. Thank you so much. Again, that was Noelle Mason from The Collegian talking about her story that is currently up on Collegian's front page. And that was discussing CSU's new partnership with Panacea Life Sciences for a CBD research lab. We'll be right back. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard from Noelle Mason from the Collegian about a new research partnership at the university. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Tuesday. 
Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama warehouse workers voted against unionization, and the union says that Amazon threatened layoffs based on a union election results. According to Kim Lyons at The Verge, the retail, wholesale, and department store union filed a formal objection to union election results at the Amazon warehouse after employees voted against unionizing April 9th. According to a news release from the union, Amazon, quote, created an atmosphere of confusion, coercion, and or fear of reprisals, and thus interfered with the employee's freedom of choice, end quote. Amazon said in a statement that the company was comfortable and looking forward to handling the complaint in a legal process, as they believe employees enthusiastically voted against joining a union by choice. Around half of the employees working in the Bessemer Amazon warehouse voted in the election, and less than 16% voted against unionizing. Prior to this election, Amazon sent out an email threatening to lay off workers if unionization occurred. The United Kingdom is considering the use of Britcoin digital currency. According to Pan Pilus at the Associated Press, the Bank of England and UK's Treasury announced plans to work together to research digital currency through a central bank, especially as cash, pay cash payments continue to decline. This new currency, if used, would be inclusive of households and businesses rather than just investors, who other digital currencies generally target for use. This new currency would also exist alongside cash and debit deposits and wouldn't completely replace the current system. Many other countries also began exploring this concept for their central banks, but they are being viewed entirely as separate from cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. The, the Bahamas is the only nation currently using an online currency, but China began using it in some cities, while the European Central Bank has shown interest in creating one soon. President Joe Biden met with policy advisors and CEOs in an attempt to handle the semiconductor shortage in the U.S. According to Scott Detrow and Franco Ordonez at National Public Radio, the critically low supply is slowing automobile production and threatens U.S. national security. Biden met with this group in an attempt to build up domestic semiconductor chip manufacturing and reduce reliance on foreign nations for the product. Biden showed interest in legislation to support this transition and wants to use his new infrastructure plan to support this new manufacturing interest. NPR says that this shortage affects nearly every industry in the U.S., but especially the automotive industry, which has been forced to shut down some plants as a result. That's all for Tech News Updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for Weird News with Ivy Winfrey. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey. And sometimes things need to get a little bit weird. So here's a couple of the weirdest stories I found from around the world today. Two Tennessee women have been charged with attempting to spend a fake $1 million bill at a dollar store. According to the Daily Times, a employee of the discount store Dollar General in Marysville reported April 5th that the woman tried to use the counterfeit fortune to purchase several gift cards. Blount County Sheriff's de uh, deputies responded around 10 in the morning, April 5th, and spoke with one of the suspects, Amanda McCormick, who said she, quote, received the $1 million bill in the mail from a church, but could not provide the church information, end quote, according to an incident report obtained by the smoking gun. McCormick claims she was using the money to buy care packages for people experiencing homelessness. The other woman involved in the incident told investigators that she had no idea McCormick had the phony bill and was only riding along while McCormick did errands. 
The women were ordered not to return to the Dollar General and were released without charges. Deputies took the bill as evidence. The largest bill ever printed for public circulation in the U.S. was a $10,000 note, according to the Federal Reserve. The last $10,000 bill was printed in 1945, along with other since-discontinued denominations of $500, $1,000, and $5,000, and was issued until 1969. The Pentagon has confirmed that leaked photos and videos of UFOs are legitimate, according to Laura Natani at The Guardian, furthering the growing interest in unidentified flying objects, or what the U.S. government refers to as unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs. The Department of Defense released on Thursday that recently leaked photos and videos of UFOs or UAPs were legitimate and taken by Navy personnel. Sue Go, a spokesperson for the Pentagon, confirmed to CNN that images and footage of a blinking triangular object in the sky, along with other UAPs that were categorized as a sphere, acorn, and metallic blimp, were taken by Navy personnel in 2019. Go told CNN that the Defense Department would not comment further on the nature of the footage or share any examinations into them, stating, quote, to maintain operations security and to avoid disclosing information that may be useful for potential adversaries, the Department of Defense does not discuss publicly the details of either the observations or the examinations of reported incursions into training ranges or designated airspace, including those incursions initially de designated as UAP. End quote. Last April, the Pentagon released three videos of UAPs taken in 2004 and 2015 that included audio of pilots amazed at the speed of the objects they were seeing. The, released, uh, the release of the footage kicked off federal interest in investigating UAPs. In August, the Defense Department created a UAP task force in following the pressure from congressional lawmakers. In December... Congress passed its government funding bill that included a directive to the National Intelligence Director and Defense Secretary to release a report on UAPs in six months' time. Per Congress's spending bill, the UAP report must be published by early June to meet its deadline. The Suez Canal blockage as well as the coronavirus lockdowns have been blamed for an international shortage in garden gnomes. According to the BBC, the figures are in short supply, with raw materials being hard to come by. Ian Byrne, assistant manager of Highfield Garden World in Whitminster, says there had been a massive upswing in the sales of garden gnomes, but that, quote, we haven't seen a gnome in six months now, unfortunately. Byrne says garden centers had experienced a boom in that their popularity was causing issues with the availability of many popular items, saying, quote, there aren't any gnomes. There's definitely a shortage. It's a combined thing with the garden centers being so busy. I looked at some of the figures based on March, which said garden centers were 97% busier than they were in 2019. Every day has been like a bank holiday. That's good, but it's definitely causing some issues, because it's not just English garden centers that are booming, it's all across Europe, so it's causing issues with supply, end quote. Garden Center Association Chief Executive Ellen Wiley says that, quote, While garden gnomes are not top of everyone's list, gardening has been very popular during lockdown, and correspondingly, we've had difficult times where supply chains have been under pressure. With goods arriving from abroad, garden centers were affected by the ship getting stuck in the canal as much as any other industry. 
garden furniture ornaments, of which gnomes would be some, being stuck in containers trying to come over here. He added that other garden products had been affected, and that centers were doing everything to keep the supply chains moving. Furniture giant Ikea, in a Leisure and Outdoor Furniture Association, recently said that they were among those having problems with garden furniture supply due to a combination of high demand and shipping problems. That's all I have for today. I'm Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. And now for the weather. Today was warmer and drier than earlier this week with a high of 42 and a low of 24 with mostly sunny skies. Wednesday, clouds will roll out in Fort Collins with a high of 39 and a low of 28 with a 20% chance of precipitation. Thursday warms back up with partly cloudy skies and a high of 51 with a low of 30 and again a 20% chance of precipitation. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the Rocky Mountain Review only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock, and information for this segment comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Corrin, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmarati, Lindsay Johnson, Sam Bonafe, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>